Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Do Not Be Afraid, Radical Faith in New Possibilities. It's the guest essay by Edwina Gately. Gately's journey has led her to teaching in Africa, founding the Voluntary Missionary Movement, sojourning in the Sahara Desert, spending nine months of prayer in a trailer in the woods, befriending and ministering to street people and women in prostitution, and preaching the good news that God is with us. Edwina Gately is a poet, theologian, artist, writer, lay minister, modern-day mystic, and prophet. She's also a single mom. She gives talks, conferences, and retreats in the United States, as well as internationally, while continuing to reach out to women in recovery from drugs and prostitution. You can visit her website at edwinagately.com. Do Not Be Afraid, a guest essay based on the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 24, 2013, the second Sunday in Lent. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 reads, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. I read an article recently about how climate change is drastically affecting our world food supply. One sobering fact that I heard on public radio really made me pause. Apparently, the bluefin tuna stocks are down by 96%. I enjoy tuna. It makes a great lunch sandwich. But suddenly, I began to be aware of the very real possibility that the next generation of potential tuna lovers might never get to enjoy it. That is, of course, because our generation has been, and continues to be, unfaithful stewards of our planet Earth. It would seem that we rape, ravage, destroy, and consume at such a rate that the Earth, our home, is beginning to manifest deep distress through increasingly violent weather patterns, floods, earthquakes, storms, droughts, plummeting fish and animal species. You name it, it's here. The news is increasingly dire, especially for the folks in the Southern Hemisphere and for the poor, who already have a hard enough time of it. At least one billion are constantly hungry. But in actual fact, in spite of all our natural as well as man-made disasters, we could still feed the world. We could still be the gospel people who feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and house the homeless. We do, for instance, have the food resources. It's what we do with our resources that's the problem. According to the United Kingdom's Institute of Mechanical Engineers, apparently half of all the world's food products ends up as waste every year. This waste is mostly because of unnecessarily strict sell-by dates, buy one, get one free, in Western consumer demands for cosmetically perfect food. 
What we need to do, instead of helplessly lamenting the state of the world, is to ask the deeper questions. What is really going on? Can we indeed make a difference? If so, how? These questions require a deeper look than just listening to the world news and lamenting. They require a personal withdrawal from all the horror stories and fear-mongering we hear endlessly on TV, radio, Facebook, Twitter, smartphones, and so on. Instead, we need a mountain to sit upon. We need, like Jesus in the Gospel, to take a radical journey to a quiet and lonely place where we may see and experience a different perspective. While being conscious of our world's pain and diminishment, a quiet, lonely place allows us to sink within ourselves to listen to a deeper reality which tells us, have no fear. We're invited to have no fear because there's an eternal covenant which, though we are unfaithful people, may blindly and stupidly be about the business of destroying, a more powerful and holy truth is about the eternal business of preserving. We are called to the mountains so that we might be reminded to take this ancient covenant seriously in our troubled times. We must ponder deeply in silence and repentance how we can do things differently. We must remember in silence and repentance that the divine presence never leaves us, no matter how immersed in evil we may be. When we sit alone on the mountain, or wherever it is that you can be alone and still for a while, the perennial grace and mercy of a grieving God rises above the noise the frenzy, and the horror of our fearsome deeds, and we become conscious of hope and redemption. This, of course, is what Lent is all about. It's about a radical faith in new possibilities come about through an honest acknowledgement of our sin and a radical commitment to start over. Lent reminds us that we are all capable of resurrection and graced with awesome potential for redemption in new life. But we must believe in the miracle, over and against the reality. We must believe that, however small we perceive our efforts to be, if made in faith and sincerity, they are capable of affecting the universe. The very act of temporary withdrawal into silence and prayer represents itself a new beginning, a sign of hope in the light of Christ, a contemporary transfiguration in an otherwise darkened world. We can, like Jesus, come down from the mountain. We may not cure an epileptic child as Jesus did, but maybe we will refuse to be seduced into buy one, get one free. Maybe we will not discard food that has reached its sell-by date. And maybe we will not demand that our food look perfect. These calls to conscious action 
given the enormity of global problems, seems almost trivial. But that's exactly the point. Our own conversion, in a host of little ways, is essential to keep the covenant. It's essential to heal our world, and even, with the grace of God, to save the bluefin tuna. And for further reflections, the following poem from Edwina Gately, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. Soften us, O gentle God, soften us. Let the fire of your love thaw the frost within us. Let the light of your justice sear away our blindness. Let the grace of your compassion heal our hardened spirits. O living God, soften us, that flowing with your grace, we be impelled to face the world in bold compassion, that driven to justice, we may dare to cry aloud for the little ones, the raped, the beaten, the imprisoned, and the hungry. O living God, soften us, sweep us forward in a mighty wave of mercy to heal our hurting world. A guest essay by Edwina Gately. <clears throat> For books this week, I review a novel by Kevin Powers. It's called The Yellow Birds, 2012. Kevin Powers, who was born in 1980, was raised in a small town in Virginia. When he was 17, he enlisted in the Army. And then, in 2004 and 2005, he spent a year in Iraq as a machine gunner. After an honorable discharge, Powers graduated from Virginia Commonwealth University and then the University of Texas at Austin, where he earned a Master of Fine Arts. Somewhere in those years, he became a keen observer of human nature, especially of his own psyche. He also became a gifted writer. His novel, The Yellow Birds, his very first book, has won numerous awards, including finalists for the National Book Award in Fiction, and uniformly rave reviews from critics. The Yellow Birds is narrated by Private John Bortle, who at the age of 30 reflects back on his experiences of war in Iraq when he was 21, and in particular on his close friendship with a fellow private, 18-year-old Daniel Murphy. In Bortle's telling, war is a barbarous and cruel experience, stripped of all jingoistic lies, such as a colonel's half-assed patent imitation, in which he told his troops how they were about to, quote, do great violence in the cause of good. The novel shows how only the first part of the colonel's rant was true. The chapters alternate between the platoon's battles in Al-Tafar and Bortle's attempts to recover once he's back home as a deeply broken man. 
The degradation and savagery of war filled Bortle with shame and self-loathing at what he had done and become as a human being. He was a murderer, he says, with many rationalizations for his cruelties. He made an important promise that he couldn't keep. The only way to survive was to, quote, stay deviant, end quote. Then there was the disconnect back home, where people thanked him for his service and treated him like a hero. He writes, I feel like I'm being eaten from the inside out, and I can't tell anyone what's going on because everyone is so grateful to me all the time, and I'll feel like I'm ungrateful or something or like I'll give away that I don't deserve anyone's gratitude, and really they should all hate me for what I've done, but everyone loves me for it, and it's driving me crazy. And so, he writes, it felt like acid was seeping down into your soul. The whole experience, says Bortle, ravaged your spirit. Powers' novel reminded me of the aphorism of the Yale chaplain William Sloan Coffin, that in war, for every boy turned into a man, there are five human beings turned into animals. Kevin Powers' The Yellow Birds, a novel, For movies this week, I review a film called Chasing Ice from 2012. The story is in the ice, says National Geographic photographer James Baylog. This 80-minute documentary follows Baylog in his so-called Extreme Ice Survey, EIS, in which his team placed 25 time-lapse cameras among the glaciers of Iceland, Greenland, Alaska, and Montana. For those who don't find complicated statistics and computer modeling about climate change compelling, Baylog's images are powerful testimonies of how global warming is melting glaciers at an alarming rate. The before and after photos are shocking. The film loses its way a bit with its hero worship of Balog. His team travels to remote and harsh places by helicopter, dog sled, canoe, and crampons. They solve complicated technological problems, are separated from their families for long periods, and then lament their aches and pains in their tents at night all for their noble cause. And as I left the theater, two volunteers were passing out brochures to viewers. The film works more as symbolic image than hard science, but that's still an important goal. For some of Balog's still photos, you can see his article in National Geographic called The Big Thaw. Chasing Ice, 2012. <clears throat> and finally, for the second Sunday in Lent, we've posted a poem by Anna Akhmatova, who lived from 1889 to 
1966. It's called Crucifixion. Weep not for me, mother, in the grave I have life. The choir of angels glorified the great hour. The heavens melted in flames. He said to his father, Why hast thou forsaken me? And to his mother, Oh, weep not for me. Mary Magdalene smote her breast and wept. The disciple whom he loved turned to stone. But where the mother stood in silence, nobody even dared look. Anna Akhmatova, Crucifixion. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, February 24th, 2013, the second Sunday in Lent, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.